Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are continuing the denomination series with a whopper. This week we are talking about the Adventists. First thing, I apologize in advance if you hear rain. I have a metal roof, but I can't, you know, beggars can't be choosers about the ideal time to record. This is the only opportunity I had today. Uh, and so if you hear rain, apologize for that. Just think of it as ambiance, right? Second, remember that Christ Secure is subscriber-supported. We need more patrons on the support team to ensure that we continue into Season 5. Go look into all those details at patreon.com forward slash Christ And, of course, I am talking about a tradition that is not my own. So double-check my work, do some research, use the topics and terms I bring to the forefront as a means of better Google searches, refined searches, whatever you want to call them. And so that's that. Let's go ahead and jump into it. So... As we progress in this series, our initial criteria of looking at Protestant denominations is kind of, you know, going to the wayside because there are groups that people want to hear about that go outside of that label of a Protestant denomination, which uh, that kind of began with the Mennonite episode. They were further detached from being Protestant and Protestant here. I'm presupposing an idea of a denomination arising specifically from the 16th and 17th century with Protestant specific ideals. And so that would exclude some of these groups that we're talking about, right? The Mennonites, they're they're on the, the edge of it. But now here, as we go into the Adventist movement, and then later on the Pentecostals and the Restoration movement, we, we've kind of gone out of Protestant denominations. So take that as you will. But this episode will also differ compared to the other episodes in that we're going to spend time briefly considering some extra points on a particular group within the movement of Adventism which we haven't done with any other group. And so it's going to be unique in that way. And what I mean will be made evident as we proceed. First things first, some people have questioned why I am doing Adventists as a denomination. And that's because there's a misconception that all Adventists are Seventh-day Adventists, but that is not true. The Adventist movement is larger than that. Uh, so let's go ahead and start talking the history. The Adventist movement arose in the 19th century, and it stemmed from an emphasis on premillennialism, which is a particular belief regarding the return of Jesus, that is his second coming. The American Revolution and Great Awakenings led to a hyperfixation on the notion that the Holy Spirit's activities were being heightened and that the return of Jesus was imminent. This led to Adventism. Which one can ascertain Advent means here the second coming of Christ, not his first coming. But this movement focused heavily on reading the signs of the times and being focused on the sudden return of Christ. At the time of the movement's inception, the wider Christian body viewed the Adventists as extreme in their eschatological focus. And eschatology is that doctrines of the end times, right? So specifically, we're talking like the pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, but even in terms of final judgment, new heavens, new earth and so on and so forth. But they were generally seen as extreme in their focus, and they were viewed as separate from the Protestant churches. Now, William Miller would be a very influential voice in the movement and would come to believe that the second coming of Christ would occur sometime in March in either 1843 or 1844. His work spread to the point where even hymns were being penned about the second coming of Christ, and he would go on speaking tours with charts, chronologies and presentations, and he would convince thousands to believe in his calculations. However, when his calculations proved erroneous, some left the Adventist movement along with Miller himself. Others, dubbed the Millerites, however, continued the work of trying to calculate the dates, but to no avail. The Great Disappointment is a key event. 
That is when Christ did not return in October of 1844. Quote, many gave up on Adventism, some gave up on the Christian faith itself, others simply gave up on the desire to fix a date for the Advent. Out of the ashes of the disappointment, new Adventist bodies arose and divided over the relevance of Miller's original interpretations. And that's from the Handbook of Denominations. The American Millennial Association was formed in 1845, and these individuals held that Christ would return before the Millennial Kingdom came and that the resurrection of the dead had two stages. Later, this association changed its name to the Evangelical Adventist Church, but it did not last long. In fact, I'm not even sure if it's still continuing to this day. I didn't really double check. Many bodies arose from this great disappointment, but their commonality was still this focus on the second coming of Christ as the key and crucial hope for both the church and the world. Olson summarizes the difference among the Adventists as follows, quote, Adventists are pessimistic about the present age, but they are filled with confidence and hope for God's future. In the meantime, they teach that God's people must be righteous, devout, and disciplined. Those who would be saved should practice a wholesome personal and family life, as well as a life of obedience to God. They should also work diligently towards evangelizing the world in preparation for the return of Christ. There are still differing understandings among Adventists. Are the dead conscious or unconscious as they await the resurrection? Who are to arise, both the righteous and the wicked, or only the righteous? Is there to be eternal punishment or ultimate annihilation for the wicked? What is the nature of immortality? Does the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8 refer to a sanctuary in heaven or to one on earth? Answers to these questions have served to divide various Adventist groups. End quote. So another key difference with some Adventists are the Seventh-day worshipers. This is kind of a staple in some people's mind about Adventism at large, but not all Adventists held to Seventh-day worship, but those who did or do believe that that commandment for Sabbath observance on Saturday is still active, and they reject the idea of Sunday worship. However, there are Adventists who gather on Sunday, and there is a key emphasis or heavy focus on continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so there is some more emphasis placed on like dietary laws or restrictions, but how that's expressed differs. Now, while Adventists are critiqued on the point of seventh day worship, every denomination mentioned so far has actually wrestled with this question and have had some seventh day observers in their midst. For example, there were Seventh-day Baptists at one point. To quote Olson again, quote, There are many misconceptions about Adventism. Probably the most common one is that all Adventists belong to the largest individual denomination whose name includes the word Adventist, that is, the Seventh-day Adventist Church or General Conference. In fact, it is only one of several Adventist denominations. Some of those spawned by the Adventist movement do not use the word at all. Among those who are aware of Seventh-day Adventism, there is a misconception that all Adventists worship on Saturday and observe it as the Sabbath. In fact, not all Adventists worship on Saturday, and those who do probably bar the practice from other Baptist organizations that came prior in North America, such as the Seventh-day Baptist. The only thing all these denominations share in common is roots in the Adventist movement of the mid-19th century and an intense belief in the imminent and pre-millennial return of Jesus Christ. The latter belief exists in many other Christian traditions, including Pentecostals, end quote. Now, if you don't know, there was an individual named Ellen White who was influential in Seventh-day Adventism. We'll get down to that in a minute. But some of the Adventist groups that we know today actually came from actively rejecting the works of Ellen White, 
to which one example is the Advent Christian Church General Conference, or ACGC. Now, the ACGC is actually considered evangelical, and they hold that the Bible is the only source of authoritative teaching. They are part of the National Association of Evangelicals, and they generally are recognized as being evangelical. Additionally, they hold to Sunday worship and, like some other Adventist groups, teach conditional immortality or conditionalism, or it's also sometimes called annihilationism, which is a distinctive among the Adventists, yet a viable position that is held in other denomination circles as well. To be brief on this point, conditional immortality or annihilationism can get a knee-jerk reaction due to the prominence of the traditional view that is eternal conscious torment or because of misunderstandings of the position. But it is worth pointing out that conditional immortality is not a violation of any essential of the faith and is not considered heresy, but instead is a viable position with exegetical arguments contrary to popular conception. Further, it is or was held by many within church history, both ancient and the Reformation, along with various individuals in evangelical circles, such as scholars like Richard Bauckham, R.T. France, Dell Moody, and John Stott. Moving on from here, tracking the more progressive or conservative movements within the wider Adventist movement is a bit difficult. However, there are some divergences, such as the Church of God, parentheses, Seventh Day, that would move into anti-Trinitarianism. But also notes that this is actually changing within that group. Uh, there is a slight movement to orthodoxy, but they're still ambiguous. So they're, they're kind of just sitting in, in the wind on that. When it comes to divergences, there have been many groups that have arisen from Adventist influence or ideals. For example, some scholars find affinity between the Adventists and groups such as the Church of God and Saints of Christ, or more commonly known as the Black Hebrew Israelites. Additionally, Charles Taze Russell, if you know who that is, was heavily influenced by the Adventists. And if you don't know who that is, he is the founder or organizer of the Jehovah's Witness, originally known as the Watchtower Tract and Bible Society. Given those two groups are cults, we won't be spending time on them here. But the most familiar and significant Adventist group are the Seventh-day Adventists, or SDA. And the reason why is because the SDA is the largest Adventist organization, and their history has set them in constant controversy. They've gotten a lot of attention over the years. They will be discussed towards the second half of this episode, but we're going to focus on the ACGC for now because it is confirmed and officially evangelical. They are our conservative base for this episode. So the ACGC, or again, the Advent Christian Church, formed in 1845 after the Great Disappointment. And while they had a high regard for Miller, he was not involved with the founding of the church. The ACGC rejected the prophecies of Ellen White, and they moved to a position more akin to solo scriptura in terms of how they viewed authority. In 1860, they had their first general conference and opened up various missionary channels such as publications, colleges, and so forth. Advent Christian Witness is the most popular and continued publication from the ACGC. And as mentioned prior, the ACGC is considered conservative and evangelical as members of the NAE or National Association of Evangelicals. However, the group does ordain women but still maintains conservative positions on marriage and sexuality. In terms of authority, the ACGC holds that the Bible is the only infallible and authoritative word of God and tends towards solo scriptura, yet they do have a declaration of principles that outlines their general beliefs. In terms of polity or church government, the ACGC is congregational, but it does have an organized communion like other congregational models. 
with a general conference that meets every three years and works to aid the denomination in missions, leadership, education, and so forth. On their website, they actually provide maps for the regions and conferences, which is exceptionally helpful. I'm grateful for that. Uh, and within the regions, there are conferences, and conferences are networks of churches within a limited geographical area that are subsets of a said region. They state, quote, while the conferences vary in size and function, most credential pastors pool resources for local ministry and provide opportunities for fellowship among churches on the local level, end quote. And that is from their website. Again, having all these links in the description will be the norm. While they are located in North America, they do conduct and have missions in other countries as well. In their declaration, they state, quote, We believe the Church of Christ is an institution of divine origin, which includes all true Christians of whatever name, but that the local church organizations should be independent of outside control, congregational and government, and subject to no dictation of priest, bishop, or pope, although true fellowship and unity of action should exist between all such organizations, end quote. On the sacraments, the ACGC holds the two ordinances, baptism and the supper. The former is qualified as immersion as the only valid administration of it. The ACGC is thus credo Baptist and holds that baptism is administered only once by immersion to the person who professes faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior as a sign of entrance into both the visible and invisible church. On the Lord's Supper, I couldn't really find the ACGC's position though my educated guess would be something more akin to memorialism. Just double-check me on that, because whenever I looked around, I didn't find it. Further, while not being a sacrament or ordinance, it is worth pointing out because of the nature of Adventists that they state, quote, We believe that the first day of the week, as the day set apart by the early church in commemoration of Christ's resurrection, should be observed as the Christian Sabbath and used as a day of rest and religious worship, end quote. In terms of distinctives and emphasis, the ACGC's or Adventist distinctives have been kind of noted already. The eschatological emphasis can certainly be marked as a significant distinctive for the Adventists, but especially its formal adoption of conditional immortality. While others in various denominations may hold to conditional immortality, there aren't many congregations that formally adopt the doctrine as a whole that I've observed. In terms of the ACGC specifically, they are distinct from other Adventist groups in terms of being accepted as evangelical formally. They're the only ones I know that are. Additionally, the ACGC rejects war as incompatible with Christ's teachings. Members do not participate in armed conflict and emphasize a separation of church and state. And so that kind of wraps up our summary of the ACGC. And now we can talk about the SDA or Seventh-day Adventists. The status of the SD has been hotly contested. It is convoluted. The history is messy. Debates abound about whether or not they are a cult um, or whether or not they are a theological cult or a sociological cult or both. But the most notable and significant correspondence on the subject is between Walter Martin and SDA leadership. If you don't know, Walter Martin, who I've quoted in one of the first two episodes, is kind of known for his work on or he is known for his work on the cults. And so he had a significant impact on the history of the SDA whenever you start digging in. In his book, The Rise of the Cults, Martin wrote a chapter about Adventism critiquing the SDA as a cult. He's planning on writing more on the subject, but he wanted to discuss it with leadership first. This led to several meetings, eventually with the SDA publishing a work in 1957, often called the QOD for short, and it stands for Questions on Doctrines. This was the official answer to Martin and his associates who were accompanying him to the meetings. 
The QOD led to conflicts within the SDA for years. In fact, you can still say that there are conflicts over all that transpired. But in 1984, Walter Martin and the SDA writer William Johnson met on the John Ankerberg. I think that's how you say his name. And it was kind of like an informal debate with the title of Who Was Telling the Truth About Seventh-day Adventism? And I'll link that as well. Needless to say, this led to more controversy, and that controversy continued for quite some time, which we don't really have time to expand on. I'll link some stuff. You can get some summaries. Essentially, despite the clarifications of the QOD, which sought to convince Martin and his company that the SDA wasn't a cult, the SDA was simultaneously publishing works arguing for things that contradicted the QOD, which really were those original teachings that Walter Martin had criticized. And so you have this weird what's going on moment where, in essence, by all accounts, the SDA appeared to have produced the QOD for the sake of saving face as a PR stunt. And so you'll see these discussions about how the SDA lied to Walter Martin. You can go investigate that further. That's just usually how it's painted. The SDA's production of their fundamental beliefs that you can find on their website now exasperated the situation as Martin discussed with Johnson pointing out that the fundamental beliefs were general enough to be orthodox, but that the terms were equally loaded with materials that the SDA had been producing. In other words, all the right terminology was being used, but with different definitions that were contrary to orthodoxy. This really led to a bigger question of, well, this is what cults do. They use the same terminology with different definitions, and they're not transparent about what they actually believe, leading Walter Martin to be kind of conflicted on the whole issue. In 1980, the General Conference actually adopted a fundamental belief on Ellen White that has been equally deemed dubious. Ultimately, what has been concluded by many is that the leadership of the SDA lied to Martin, knowing how big of an impact his work on the cults was having. Now, in the latest edition of his work on Kingdom of the Cults, there is an appendix directly speaking to both the history of this correspondence and his analysis of SDA doctrine that they produced in the QOD. Now, in this appendix, Dr. Martin concluded that they were not occults, but instead had significant flaws in their system, but they still held to classical doctrines on orthodoxy. Martin notes that there are two streams within the movement, however, and this is important. He said that there was two streams, a traditional Adventism that argued for things contrary to the QOD, those things that he did deem as cultic, and then a evangelical Adventism. Martin, in his analysis, would say that this former group, the traditional Adventists, were mostly the leadership, and he defined it as moving away from the exonerating document of the QOD or just flat out redefining its contents. The latter, that is the evangelical Adventism, were those who were maintaining the QOD, perhaps on a congregational level, but in either case, it was causing confusion. Quoting that appendix, quote, While Adventist officials have stated that the denomination stands by the QOD, some of the same leaders have disfellowshipped scores of Adventists for affirming portions of the QOD. Instead of upholding the QOD, some leaders within the denomination have referred to it as a damnable heresy, end quote. At the same time, in this appendix, he states that he perceives that the majority of SDAs are evangelical, while the deviations from evangelical ideas were actually held by the leadership, to which he said this caused immense confusion. To this, Martin would classify traditional Adventism as largely orthodox but confused or compromising on certain doctrines such as justification, the natures of Christ, and the elevation of white as the infallible means of interpreting scripture. 
Quote, the modern state of Seventh-day Adventism is that the majority, about 66%, identify with evangelical theology while still holding to the distinctive persuasions of the denomination. These are the evangelical Adventists. The traditional Adventists are the minority, but they are often in positions of control, which confuses Christians and outsiders who fail to investigate the entire organization. Another minor segment takes a more liberal theological position akin to Protestant liberals, end quote. So Martin stressed that the Adventists, given this mix, ought to be viewed in accordance with the QOD or fundamental beliefs and could not be weighed and measured based off of leadership or individuals who conflicted with them. He would basically say these are the standards now and that this evangelical stream should be taken more seriously. He would say that one must consult in good faith what the denomination in itself represents as its theology and assume that the Seventh-day Adventist theologians know better than the non-Adventist the implications and conclusions that they are willing to admit as representative of the church's theology, end quote. Because of Walter Martin's influence, many have agreed with Walter Martin on this, to which really you should go read the full appendix cited in uh, The Kingdom of the Cults, but you'll find the same sentiment in the Handbook of Denominations, which does presuppose the QOD or fundamental doctrines as being transparent representations of what the SDA believes. They say, quote, the Seventh-day Adventists have about 17 million members in over 200 countries. They hold to the classical doctrine of Orthodox Christianity, such as the deity of Christ and the Trinity, as well as the Reformation emphasis on Scripture alone, grace alone, and faith alone. The understanding of biblical teaching is encapsulated in 28 fundamental doctrines, which can only be modified by vote of the World Assembly, called the General Conference Session, which meets every five years. The name of the church enshrines the heart of their beliefs and practices strongly committed to obedience to the teachings of the whole Bible. They observe the seventh day Saturday as the day of worship. As Adventists, they expect their soon return of Jesus to this earth. And since their organization as a church, they have distanced themselves from efforts to set a date from the second coming, end quote. Now, despite these types of statements, there are dissenters who argue on the flip side, mostly against the traditional stream that Martin mentions and those views range from it's a cult or it is cultic or borderline cultish and so forth. It has been pointed out that like other cults, the SDA uses proper terminology, but they have that terminology loaded with different definitions. Their convoluted history and reliance on Ellen White or even the history of Ellen White makes them even more subject to scrutiny. The role of Ellen White is crucial to the classification of the SDA. Because if Ellen White is an infallible interpreter of scripture, then some essentials such as the Trinity do find compromise because White's writings on Trinitarianism and Christology tend to move towards tritheism, uh, errors on the hypostatic union or basic Christology. And so if she is an infallible interpreter of scripture and she is the standard of doctrine for the SDA, then the SDA is heretical on various points. For a quick background, Ellen White, when she was a teen, claimed to have received visions and messages from heaven, and these would be key contributions to the SDA theology. Her works were extensive. She wrote over 20 million words in her commentaries and theologies with handfuls of plagiarism, some all right in doctrine, some confused theologically, and some just bizarre. She claimed that the Bible was the final judge of all revelations, but also claimed that she never wrote any heresy. And the SDA formally adopts this idea that the Bible is the judge and text of all revelations, but many within traditional Adventism saw her as an infallible or authoritative means of proper interpretation or faithful interpretation. Now, there is a spectrum regarding Ellen White. Some take her as just a faithful commentary. Some take her as an inspired commentary, incomplete sync with the Bible, and that 
the official stance of the SDA is that she is in complete sync with the Bible. Again, the views regarding white range, some see her as just an exceptional woman of God whose works aid in the foundation or formation of the SDA theology, kind of like Luther was to Lutheranism minus the prophetic claim, but others see her as a prophet of exceptionally high caliber with her works just below or equal to scripture. This spectrum really complicates the whole situation, but mostly because of the high esteemed articulations of white can still lend white as being the proper interpretation of the scriptures, even without explicit articulation of such. For example, the SUA can say that it's the Bible alone, but if white's doctrines are presupposed as biblical or the faithful interpretation of the Bible's teachings, then white's work are still the authoritative litmus test. And this logically leads to doctrinal issues being in play, especially with this larger meta narrative called the Great Controversy. Now, in their fundamental doctrines, number 18, they state, the scriptures testify that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. This gift is an identity mark of the remnant church, and we believe it was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. Her writings speak with prophetic authority and provide comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction to the church. They also make clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teachings and experience must be tested, end quote. Now, the statement ends by stating that the Bible is the standard, but only after presupposing the authority of White's writings for instruction and correction. Taken at face value, this means that all the fundamental doctrines that have been listed out so far must be defined and understood through the lens of White's articulation, which has already been stated as authoritative for guidance, instruction, and correction of the church. Surely this does not exclude doctrine. So this is ambiguous enough to cause problems, and the ambiguity is actually one of the major problems with the SDA as history has unfolded with them. All of these concerns have been listed by many individuals, including Martin himself, in terms of he was concerned with the position of Ellen White, stating that if Ellen White was elevated too much, even slightly more, that they would be a cult. But additionally, the changing of terminology is a big concern, and there are many in this day and age who are working to address these issues, such as Dr. Ronald Obidos. I hope I said your name right, brother. Uh, the Cultish Podcast had some episodes on them back when. But then I also learned of a, another ministry called AnsweringAdventism.com that looks very thorough. I, I still haven't got a chance to check out his stuff, but it looks like he's really gone into the weeds on some of this stuff. But a good sample of the concern can be seen in White's works on the person work of Christ, which are also debated given her confused language in a number of places on both the humanity and deity of Christ. For example, she states that the son was made from the father, torn from his bosom, and her work, The Duty of the Minister and the People. And you can see that in paragraph 14. And she denotes that the son was one in nature with the father, but this is defined as being in character and in purpose. Furthermore, elsewhere in Patriarchs and Prophets, she calls the Son a separate being from the Father. In this same work, which is basically an, an extra biblical account of how sin entered the world and how Satan fell, she says that the Son was exalted to the place of equality with the Father. And then she also notes in the Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 2, page 9, that the Son of God was next in authority to the great lawgiver instead of having the same authority as the Father. In the narrative of Patriarchs and Prophets, the Son is exalted above Lucifer as one in power and authority with the Father, implying that the exaltation occurred at one point or another. But in the same work, she'll contradict herself and say that this was always the case. On this point of being made, this is not just exclusive to White, like I already mentioned, or surprising, really, whenever we consider that the 
early SDA was mixed on the topic of Trinitarianism, many of them rejecting it or holding to Arianism or semi-Arianism. Even Ellen White really didn't use the term. She used trio, and then her articulation sounds more like a social Trinitarianism or tritheism. The points here really are not to create a theological debate, but to first show how the SDA actually views White is important. That spectrum should be acknowledged, um, that there are different views of Ellen White within the SDA movement, especially since there are some SDAs who actually actively reject White's revelations. But those who have a higher view of White and view her as authoritative, this becomes particularly important, especially on things like this, where begotten equals being made at some point in time, which is a formal heretical position that would be articulated by the SDA if her writings are the standard. The second point is that the SDA's history of loading terms and changing definitions, whether intentionally or not, but appearing orthodox, certainly seems to be reoccurring and occurring on the formal level. Like I said, Martin expressed both of these concerns in his charitable contributions on the subject, so that's really what it comes down to. Transparency is the key term in the overall situation. In addition to this, the SDA actually has a paraphrase of the Bible called the Clear Word Bible. It does not lend itself to actually helping the SDA position at all. It is not an official text by the SDA, but it is published by an SDA publishing house and has many alterations that are clear SDA interjections. With this said, there are instances where the SDA is challenged on doctrines where there are better hills to die on. For example, some will dispute this on the grounds of them holding to conditional immortality, which we already talked about. Others will hold to misconceptions like the SDA believes that Jesus is Michael in the sense of being an angelic being when they really hold that Michael is a title for the son before the incarnation, which has been held by Orthodox Christians over the centuries, including some reformers. It's a weird position, but it has been held and it still maintains the, the divinity of the son. It's not an angelic being. Now, in addition to all these complications we've already mentioned so far, especially in relation to white, the SDA's traditional insistence that the observance of the Sabbath and Saturday worship as being essential for true Christianity lingers on despite being a dwindling position, whether in practice or in terms of its strength of conviction, right? Uh, traditionally, Sunday worship was the mark of the beast for the SDA and a doctrine of demons, but the more evangelical stream of SDA has moved away from this rhetoric and is more inclusive in terms of how they view other denominations, while the SDA formally was like, no, we're the real Christians, right? Now, the SDA also takes a lot of heat for its stress on regulations and discipline and obedience, especially with its focus on health and wellness, which is not prosperity gospel. It is literally uh, your bodily health, maintaining, stewarding your body and eating well, right? Uh, and they frame this as this is for the glory of God, which does connect more to that dietary connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But they'll say that this is just obedience, not legalism. So I'm not really sure that that's uh, the angle you want to go, especially because they hold the conviction that the Sabbath and the Decalogue is retained. And they'll say something like, well, all you other Christians will say that the, the Decalogue is authoritative on all these other points, but just not the seventh day worship. Right. So they would say, well, we're just being obedient on all the points while you're subtracting one. So they tend to stress uh, the importance of obedience, while others will push them for being legalistic. Uh, there have been, however, numerous testimonies regarding the sociological cult-like tendencies within the movement, especially from a large number of ex-Adventists. Now, one issue that lingers on within the SDA is the doctrine of investigative judgment. This belief is that Christ is now, ever since 1844 and until his second coming, investigating the lives of those who claim the title of Christ. 
considering and weighing their worthiness to be included in his kingdom. This doctrine is rightfully critiqued in many ways and is worth investigating if you want to dive further into the topic. I'm not going further than that. You have the term investigative judgment. Now, a good article for further reading is from Joe Carter. It's nine things you should know about Seventh-day Adventism. Um, and I'll place that again in the description. Additionally, there are many other resources out there from both sides arguing for and against SDA, as mentioned already. So just be sure that you're weighing and measuring and considering these different streams of thought within the SDA, because really on the ground floor, you'll find a diverse articulation of these two different streams. They're not monolithic. And so you have to make sure that you take it on a case by case basis. Walter Martin, again, in his estimation, held that the majority of SDA were evangelical, while the leadership tend to be more traditional Adventists. And so that, that needs to be really considered whenever you're talking to people on the ground floor. And that has also been my experience uh, in terms of discussing with the SDA. I've met SDA individuals from all ends of the spectrum, both traditional and a more evangelical. And I think that they should be taken on a case-by-case -case basis because I have asked clarifying questions and I'll find that some are orthodox and some do hold very strange positions. I have met many wonderful evangelical SDAs, yet formally... As an organization, the SDA will forever have to jump over a very convoluted and messy history of what appears to be dishonesty on a number of very critical points. And I do think that there is a fairness in being skeptical when someone says they're SDA and are describing their position given this history. Obviously, we should ask to define terms and, you know, spell out our doctrines but I think the skepticism is warranted at this point and that if you are SDA, you should expect that level of skepticism. Of course, this doesn't mean that every organization is perfect. I'm not trying to say that, but I think that there is a level of skeptical thought that is warranted. Not only this, but like other groups that have loaded or redefined terms, skepticism is just to be expected. I imagine that most people, if they sat back and thought about it, would agree with that, right? Now, the debates on the SDA's status as a cult won't go away anytime soon. They will carry on for years to come, I'm sure. The controversies will still be recirculated in documentations and blog articles, YouTube videos, everything else. Um, I'm sure books will be written. It'll all continue. Still, in wanting to try to retain the neutral flavor of the series, I'm only going to add a small bit of my two cents here because people will ask and I don't want to have to email a bunch of people. My thoughts are this. I think there is little room to doubt that the traditional SGA can be called a cult, but because the SGA is now a mixed bag, it is difficult for me personally to paint with a broad brush like that. So I would say that the SGA is a mixed bag that I don't really trust the organization, but I'm willing to trust some of the individuals. So I'm not going to call it cultish. I'm not going to call it a cult in terms of a broad sense of the term because of that two streams of tradition. But I still think that at the end of the day, the STA is worth avoidance if for nothing else than its convoluted history and baggage. I don't see the value in being a part of an organization with that type of history. I'd be very skeptical of that, especially whenever you start thinking about origins of other cults and how other cults have played out. You have your Ellen White, you have your Joseph Smiths, you have your Charles Taze Russell, and you can think about how 
those individuals are applied in those groups today. Um, that all said, I'm all for the SGA becoming more transparent, more formal in their articulation of orthodoxy, because even looking at their website over the last you know few months, the SDA's articles on the Trinity have changed their language. A few of them were saying that they believe in three divine beings instead of persons. Now the language has been updated to say persons, but I'm still like, that doesn't sit well given everything else I've read and learned about the organization. But of course, remember too that whenever you see someone who says they're Adventist, they don't mean Seventh-day Adventist necessarily. Just double check because that's a really big misconception that the only Adventists are the Seventh-day Adventists when you have groups like the ACGC. So that's going to conclude this episode. Next week, we will talk about Pentecostalism. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.